last time on Stalin. (laughs) He was like a peasant from Georgia. And his dad sucked and left. And he went to preschool for a while. And they kicked him out. Well, he quit. I don't remember. One of those things. He stopped going. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to correct me there? Uh, He stopped going. Okay, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then his dad came back at one point. It's fine. Don't worry about it. That's like a fun season one twist. And then he starts doing crimes and robbing banks. Then revolution. He's a key player. (laughs) (laughs) He rises to power through the Communist Party, appointing his friends and kicking out his frenemies. (laughs) But then he betrays Trotsky. Kicks him out. Uh, This is after his friend Lennon dies. I forgot about that part. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) And now, part two of Stalin. All right. Thank you for that excellent (laughs) recap. I hope no one hit skip intro on that. Mm hmm. mm -hmm. This is for our prestige television series. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, today we're going to be talking about Stalin's life and. It's going to be really focused on what he's doing as kind of the leader of the Soviet Union. I also, I know I just did that very dramatic recap. I want to give us a quick strike recap. Ooh, okay. <laughs> okay. So in case you haven't listened to the previous episode in a minute, because it's been a couple weeks, Stalin's strikes as of today are kidnapping children. <laughs> he married some teens. He shut down co- counter-revolutionary newspapers. That one I'm willing to forgive. Formed a secret police, burned some villages down, and is a fake friend. By that, I mean he kicked out Trotsky and then, like, totally agreed with Trotsky. So, that's not great. Oh, yeah. When the when he changes positions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. That's a lot of strikes. We'll see if he adds some more to that today. Spoiler, he will. You know, I'm going to get rid of the newspaper one. I got some pushback on that on Twitter, and I'm willing to own to my, my mistakes. Okay, you're you're a you're a newspaper closer now. Um, yeah, sure. Fuck it. You're an avowed <laughs> enemy of the Washington Post. <laughs> oh no, they hire me sometimes. That can't be that. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, parody, parody. We're not in favor of shutting down newspapers. Nah, please, please. don't fire them. <laughs> hire me for cartoons. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> one thing. That we'll, you know, we'll be talking a lot about like, oh, Stalin did this or the Soviet Union did that. And it's, you know, we get this idea of it being a one man show sometimes. Mm-hmm. And just up top, I wanted to kind of not 100% push back on that because he is like the main guy in the party and in the government. Right. But both of those have like a complicated leadership structure and everything. So like, it's not just he gets to do whatever he wants. He walks out one day and says like, I'm the sun god, worship me. You know, like that's not going to work. <laughs> it's a pro move. But like if, you know, as long as he's doing things that are broadly, you know, kind of popular within the party or he has enough support, then he's not really going to be challenged. If that makes sense, you know? Yeah. He can't go like completely too far astray. Right. People sometimes, you know, in their kind of anti-communist hysteria paint this picture of like, everyone listened to every word he said and it was (laughs) gospel and, you know, all this sort of stuff. I mean, like that Lenin book cover we talked about last week. <laughs> the, the master of terror, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the dictator. Also, I want to disclaim that, like, we probably will leave something out. So if you're a Stalin head and you're like, oh, y'all didn't talk about whatever. Sorry. There's a lot to go through. 
A, there's a lot, and so I might have cut it for length. But B, I might not have read about it. I might not know about it. So if you want to shout out to us and say, yo, did you hear about this? We like to learn. So, you know, call us out. You already mentioned calling out before. Go ahead. That's fine. Exactly. Or call us in if you're feeling nice. (laughs) Totally fine. Send us an email. We'll chat about it. Yeah. Uh, First section here is picking up where we left off. We said uh, Stalin had already broken up with Trotsky. And then by the end of the very end of the episode, he broke up with the other guy, uh, Bukharin. Mm, That's right. Bukharin. I was saying Bukharin, but I think it's Bukharin. I I heard that on another podcast. So maybe they got it wrong, too. I don't know. I like calling him Boo Boo Karen. <laughs> well, that's who he had broke, uh, broken it off with. Damn, so many breakups. He's like Drake over here. He's going to write an album. Yeah, he leaves a trail of broken hearts behind Uh-oh. him. And Bukharin was like the more right wing Bolshevik kind of guy. I mean, you say right wing. He's not like a Republican. <laughs> or, so, you know, he was he was a Bolshevik. But the idea here was that he was a supporter of that new economic policy, um, which was like, you know, doing building socialism at a snail's pace, more market economy style stuff. By December 1927, Stalin and the Communist Party said like, hey, that's like not going to work. The NEP had built them back up to pre-revolution levels of production, but they needed more than that. They had to rapidly industrialize. Stalin kind of explained it saying, and this was in 1931, a few years after they had started it, but he was kind of talking about why we did this. And he said, we have fallen behind the advanced countries by 50 to 100 years. We must close that gap in 10 years. Either we do this or we'll be crushed. Okay, was that accurate? Were they really that far behind? I mean, yes, they they were totally behind in production. They were less efficient in terms of like workers and output and stuff. Yeah, they were way less mechanized, less industrialized than the capitalist powers and then Germany, then the United States and Britain and France uh, at that time. So question, I feel like we're going to have to talk about Hitler in this episode. <laughs> I feel like you can't talk about Stalin without talking about like World War Two. He yeah, that's a that is a section. OK, yep. <laughs> so 1931, when he says this about being behind, where was Hitler at that point? Like, do you think that was a concern of like, oh, shit, there's definitely a war coming? Hitler was a concern. He was not in power. Um, that's not until 1933. But they were on the rise, you know, and fascism was clearly on the rise there. The fascists had already taken power in Italy, so it was definitely a thing. Okay, so do you think that maybe was like at the back of his mind of like, well, we probably should get ready for war too? Definitely. And you also got to think about like all the failed revolutions that they had already seen. Like that whole world revolution thing didn't seem to be panning out. So they're like not going to get helped basically is another part of it. Gotcha. Bukharin... You know, he opposes this completely, uh, all this industrial industrializing and everything like super fast and using the state to do that. It, it, he's just so obnoxious about it. He gets him thrown out of the party. So that's why that whole thing happened. <laughs> OK, gotcha. Um, and like you said, it was pretty funny, you know, fake friend sort of thing. Because Stalin's like, oh, let's just do what Trotsky said to do, you know. <laughs> yeah. But his argument was, hey, things are different now. Like we had a little bit of a chance to slowly build up but now we really gotta hit the gas pedal okay so like i totally get changing your mind about things i wish he had like called trotsky up and be like hey come back yeah that's true and that would have been the case if it had been purely ideological like their disagreement 
Um, but by this point, he had kind of built up a narrative already that Trotsky was not just like wrong, but was also treacherous. And that's only going to get worse, as we'll see going forward. There's going to be all sorts of plots and everything linked to Stalin, some uh, linked to Trotsky, some of which he actually was doing. So. Yeah, yeah. I know a little bit about this, but OK, cool. Let's keep going. All right. The Soviet Union's on a mission to build itself up. It's trying to survive against a hostile world. And there's actually like evidence out there that they would have you know, seen at the time that this really was a hostile world that was out to get them. Uh, one example is in May 1927, uh, the UK broke off diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union, accusing them of espionage. All right. They were on my top two suspect lists of, you know, fuckery. <laughs> I bet you can guess who the number one suspect was. Um, no, no idea. No idea. <laughs> Obviously, the Soviet Union is fearful that maybe this is going to blow into war. And you might be thinking like, ah, come on, you're going to go to war with a little thing like that. But like these guys had been invaded in their very early days in the Russian Civil War by like the rest of the, the capitalist countries, you know. So they're very afraid of that. Um, and they know that at that moment, they don't really have the capability of fighting this off. So that's one thing that they're, they're trying to build up to get that capability. For another thing, things were precarious at home as well. Uh, in late 1927, they had the crisis of the NEP. Okay, that's the new economic plan? Yeah, that's the one. There was a severe grain shortage. You know, the NEP supporters said, no, uh, you know, it's a poor harvest and we're not paying farmers enough money to get them to sell to the state. But Stalin was like, I get the like the, the grain shortage. I understand the poor harvest, whatever. But why should we have to pay these people so much money to like feed our population? Like they're just trying to rip us off for more money. So he's like, we got to overhaul things. We got to get these guys out of the driver's seat and put the people in charge was how he would phrase it. And like we said, he wins the argument. So the Soviet Union launches its first five year plan in 1928. This is like a U-turn from NEP, you know, kind of like do a, a little, little bit, bit of, of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like, nope, we're going to we're going to make a list of economic targets, kind of goals, you know, and we are going to use the government to to drive the economy in that direction. Uh, it focuses on two interrelated things, rapid industrialization and agricultural collectivization. I mean, those both sound good. I would argue they are. <laughs> I think both of them came with some problems. Okay, let's see. All right, first up, collectivization. So to industrialize, you have to be able to eat, and those grain shortages, you know, you got to fix it. So the Soviet government, to start with, increased its grain requisitions. It was like, shit, we got to feed people, give us more grain. And peasants... Uh, especially a group called the Kulaks uh, resisted against this. Oh, this is like the small business guys kind of. Yes. That's a very good way to put it. Cause traditionally translated, this is like a wealthy peasant, which just to <laughs> us sounds like an oxymoron. It does. I'm picturing the, the very smart peasants in Monty Python that are like talking about government structure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is it? Um, we're like a, they call themselves like collectivists or something. An syndicalist commune yeah, or something. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And then they go into the details of the <laughs> elections. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> They're not like that. Okay. They're not as democratic as that. Damn. 
No, they're not very good. I mean, like you said, they're basically small business tyrants, but on a farm. Not great. Yeah. So I just, I don't like the charitable translation of peasant, you know, giving them that peasant title. It makes them sound nicer than they are. The poor peasants, you know, they couldn't afford to turn over that much grain. So basically what they did is like sell their, what little land they had to the kulaks and they either started working for them or they moved to the cities to get jobs in factories. So the way that works is supposed to be that these kulaks who are, you know, very industrious and smart and they know business and blah, blah, blah. That was the whole idea behind the NEP was that sort of a thing. They're going to obviously get to put all these people to work and get their fields a churning. But that is not what happens. They are capitalists at heart. Their main motivation is making money and when the state is like, give us grain, and they're not like bribing them with more money, even if they have all these workers to produce more or whatever, instead they hoard their grain or they destroy their crops and livestock even to deny it to the government. Yeah, they're fucking price gouging. Yeah, that's the modern equivalent of it. So let me guess, are they going to do some land reform maybe? They, they are, yeah. Hell yeah, my favorite. So they called it collectivization. Because it's not so much like land reform, like here you go peasant, so much as like, hey, we're going to like set up collective farms and state-owned farms. So like less individual ownership, maybe. Uh, The idea here was to increase production. You know, a bigger farm is going to be more efficient, more mechanized, more productive. And it was also going to help target those kulaks who had been such a pain in the ass. The Soviet Union, this is all kind of decentralized. So they like, um, they give orders. They're like, hey, do this, you know, but it's kind of left up to like local party um, activists and, and, and local government officials to kind of carry it out. The central government in Moscow, like really could not, didn't have the power to influence policy everywhere in the, like they didn't direct think directly control things. Think about their level of technology, you know, they couldn't project their power that far, but they could, you know, issue directives and get people out there to do things, um, which kind of sometimes spirals like a little out of control. You know, people get too zealous about things, which is bad sometimes. Does it also go the other way where like some like, I don't know, provinces or areas are just like, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Or they're, they're like, oh, we're, yeah, we're going to do that. Sure. But then they like kind of laxly do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, you don't have anything to like back it up. It sounds like. Right. And you know, you can, it's just not very efficient. Like you have to go and check sort of thing. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's one of the issues. But anyway, they set up collective farms basically a village you know they would pool all their land together and they would own it and then work it i mean that sounds good and they also had state-owned farms where they would collectivize all that land and like the government would own it and then you would work on the government's land less cool but i'm fine with it Uh, just from the soviet point of view at the time the policy was that the state-owned farms were cooler like that was what they really wanted to do and then the collective farms were like a step in that direction gotcha but both of them lasted the entirety of the soviet union's existence They also set up machine tractor stations, which were like these warehouses for agricultural machinery, kind of like a like a farm library. (laughs) Okay, that makes sense, though, because like you probably have really antiquated farming methods around the country. Yeah, tons of stuff was done just straight up, you know, manually, like, you know, draft animals and stuff like that. So these tractor stations and stuff, you know, you couldn't maybe get a tractor to every farm 100 percent of the time. But then this way you could kind of rotate them out. 
they also sent out 25,000 volunteers, these party activists, to go out to the villages and to organize and to teach the peasants, kind of to help this get going. Okay, kind of like work coordinators or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also, like, ran schools and stuff to kind of, like, teach them, like, technical skills and shit like that and night schools. They were, Remember the literacy campaigns we talked about? Like, they yeah. were still doing that, too. Cool. So, yeah, generally speaking, poor peasants supported collectivization because it, you know, took land from the kulaks and gave it to them. That sounds good. To their villages, not privately to them, but they could use it. The kulaks obviously hated this. <laughs> Some of them, well, lots of them resisted it. Mm-hmm. And that did not go well for them. Yeah, what happens? So some of them were executed, you know, if they were just straight up like, I'm going to fight against the government for this. They were like, okay, blam. <laughs> uh, or if they were like organizing, you know, let's let's all get together and take on the government, blam. And that's where I say like some of that local element comes in too. Because like if the local party group there is like, hey, fuck this guy. He's being an asshole and they killed you. That sometimes happened without an order. There were lots of them that were exiled. Everyone's favorite punishment, exile to Siberia. You know, the one you can just get out of very easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were still doing that. I mean, I think that's maybe a strike. Maybe there was no better way to do punishment. But we spent last episode talking about making fun of how many times you could get exiled. So I don't... I mean... No, I'm not saying from like a nice point of view. I'm saying from like an effective point of view. Oh, no, yeah. I don't think it's effective, but I'm also not like super into punishing people. So like kicking them out Mm. of town is good enough for me. I don't care where they get off the train, but it can't be here. Okay, I got you. Oh, and kind of the lowest tier of punishment was if you were an asshole about getting your land taken from you, then you would be resettled, but like not on the communal farm. You would be like resettled someplace where nearby in the same province or whatever but it's not like farmland it's just like some scrub land or something you get put in timeout yeah (laughs) (laughs) you go over here you can't play nice (laughs) (laughs) yeah the overall number is maybe around 1.8 million out of around 10 million kulaks did this like face some sort of punishment okay regard okay so what is that like almost 20 percent so i mean 18 percent wow yeah that's not bad. It could have been worse, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not that upset about it. <laughs> they were also like mean. They were, yeah, they were jerks. I mean, here's so. the thing. Like you could say like, oh, they were like forced to get with their land. But it's like they could have just said yes. You know? Yeah. That's <laughs> like, that's what it boils down to. <laughs> yeah. If you just said like, yes, no one would have gotten killed. I'm just saying like, and it's not like they're going to starve or something if they no. give up their farm. Like you would just work on the farm. Like, yeah, no, that's, that's a, it's a great story about the last emperor of China. You know, I mean, in the, the Chinese civil war, the communists come to power. They don't just like behead this dude. <laughs> He's allowed to like live out his life. He, he converts to be like a communist or whatever. And he, he just lives a simple life like a regular person. It's like, Meh. I mean, if you think about it, it's, if you want to put the shoe on the other foot, it's like, th- they would not have gotten that option if it were like reversed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They would have done much worse if it was like a fascist thing or something. Exactly. So collectivization, it was like voluntary, not like the Kulaks. You know, that's not voluntary, but <laughs> the land taking wasn't voluntary, but like going to work on the collective farms was. Right. But again, being run at the local level, sometimes like the way they did those meetings at the villages was like, hey, we're having this meeting. We'll leave whenever everybody agrees that we're going to do this uh, collectivization <laughs> thing. They just so, bar the doors. Yeah. So it was kind of rough sometimes. Um, okay. 
But by 1936, 90% of Soviet agriculture was collectivized. This is a long-term kind of like cycle sort of thing. So it takes a while to realize the effects of that. By 1948, the Soviet Union eliminated once commonplace famines. Wow. In Tsarist times, you're like a bad harvest away from a famine every time. And the last one they had ended in 1948. So Okay. So, and that was, they started this in what, 1931 or something? Uh, for collectivization, yeah, 1928. 28. Okay. So kind of a long road. But I mean, if you think about, again, where they're coming from technology-wise and price gouging-wise, like you had quite a weight. That's a lot of organizing. It was a tumultuous road. One of the big challenges that they faced in collectivization and collectivization kind of made it worse because it was very, it was like right when it started was the Soviet famine of 1930 to 1933. Uh, the death tolls on this are very disputed. Best numbers I can get. You're looking at around three to four million dead Oof. in Ukraine. Uh, this is the one that's often terms the Holodomor. The term Holodomor implies like the the translation of that implies like something is done to someone like it's a transitive thing it's like an active verb yeah yeah you know i i steer away from that because it, it kind of frames it as an in, intentional genocidal act but you're also looking at two to three million dead in russia and one and a half to two million dead in kazakhstan jesus you, you don't genocide somebody by killing two to three million of your own people in the process yeah that seems pretty wild or two million people in some other state that you know like that doesn't make sense the evidence that i've seen it doesn't look like the soviet government or stalin were trying to exterminate ukrainians as a people we talked about they were targeting kulaks as a specific like class enemy thing but you can just stop being a kulak by <laughs> giving up your land right? yeah they weren't doing some sort of ethnic genocide. It does look like, you know, I mean, there were severe mistakes like hauling off a bunch, requisitioning all that food right before, you know, all this happens or, or the big collectivization shakeup right before this happens. Like it does make things worse. You know, you're hitting this time period where you're going to have these growing pains right when you have a famine. Like that's bad. That doesn't help things. But I don't think that it was an intentional extermination. I mean, I am open to reading different sources on it or whatever but that's just where i came you know the conclusion i came to based on that yeah and and for context i believe if i'm not mistaken these numbers are some of the ones that often get lumped into like stalin's like death count you know oh definitely yeah which like if you want to do that like let's hold all you know u.s presidents accountable for the deaths that take place in prisons and also of hunger and like shit like that like sure let's yeah. do it <laughs> or of people not being able to get health care or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you're going to play that game, play with everybody, I guess. <laughs> yep. So that was definitely kind of uh, the rough side of collectivization because, I mean, it pays off later, but it definitely was, I think, detrimental in the short term. Yeah. Do you think there was a way around that at all? Or like, do you think there was something they could have done to avoid that? I mean, a famine's a famine. It's going to fuck you up. The famines of famine, I think it would have, it may have been like less severe if they hadn't done collectivization yet. It may have been just as bad. I mean, it's hard to say because, I mean, they would have run into different problems, you know, and at least with collectivization, maybe they had 
more distribution capacity. I'm not sure what the balance works out to on that. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, because I mean, if you had price gouging already, that would have gotten even worse during a famine. Yeah. All right. The next part of the five-year plan, the other big part of it was industrialization, catch up to the capitalists or be crushed. The Soviet Union built tons of factories, like 9,000 factories, these massive industrial centers, you know, cities springing up where there were none before, basically, producing tons of steel, tractors for mechanizing agriculture, uh, and tanks and planes. They're kind of building up their defensive capabilities, too. Makes sense. Uh, They produce some 700,000 tractors. Uh, It's during this time that they build the first line of the Moscow Metro, which opened in 1935. Hey, I have a question about that. I read a tweet that was saying that one of the reasons, you know, the United States is so dependent on cars is because we have a robust highway system. And that was very closely modeled or like built by like the military, you know, like they were trying to use it as a way to like transport nuclear weapons and shit. And someone was saying that in contrast, the Soviet Union did more of that in terms of like rails, like that's how they kind of planned out their weapons transport and and military transport. And that's why their rail system is so robust, like trains and metro. I figured the trains make sense because they did use, you know, train transport was the primary thing in the Russian Civil War, their earliest kind of experience with that. And it was used, it was used heavily in World War II as well. I don't know so much about the metro. I don't know if it served so much of a defense, if it was imagined as serving as a defense purpose or not. My inclination is no, but maybe okay. it's possible. Listeners, I let don't us know, know much about it. So. Let us know if this unsighted tweet is true. <laughs> yeah. Another big thing was having educated people to be able to carry this stuff out. So they introduced universal primary education uh, and seven-year uh, compulsory education. That's uh, not very much, but like they'll build not, on that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they, think about what they were coming from if they were having to introduce that. They were trying to build up uh, their engineering base, basically. Um, they also increased their higher and secondary technical education institutions by four times as many. So they multiplied that by four. Tons more ways to get qualified to build shit. For sure. <laughs> by the end of the second five-year plan, which is in 1937, the Soviet Union was... What place do you think they were in terms of industrial output in the world? Ooh, um, I'm going to say fifth. Nope, they were in second place. Holy shit. Second to the U.S. Oh my God, dude. So that one kind of worked. Yeah, industrialization was huge. Uh, They eliminated unemployment. Um, Just completely eliminated? Yeah, I mean, you know, you still sort of had people changing jobs or whatever, like that barely number sort of thing. The normal amount. Not like the natural rate of unemployment. That's a capitalist scam. Uh, oh, yeah, like, that's what I meant. Not that. <laughs> but just like the month to month sort of thing, you know. Yeah. they. That's crazy. No unemployment. Yeah. Uh, they could do all this. Part of it was all that extra manpower coming from the countryside. You know, the people we said they had to sell their lands and stuff. They were able to increase their industrial workforce goes from 3 million to 6 million over the course of like four years. So lots of people moving from the countryside. One downside is that one big ingredient in the fuel of the workforce was uh, prison labor. I mean, Ooh. that's not something we're really for. You know? No, that's not good. They were paid. 
you know, and not not as bad levels as we have where it's like, oh, yeah, they're paid. A like, cent. Yeah. A month. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they were paid, but it still sucks to, to have to to do work when you're in prison. I think it was in some respects like there were options of like, oh, well, if you if you don't want to work in prison, you just get like locked away in prison instead of like in a labor camp sort of thing. So I don't know if that's like good or bad because it's all bad. Still kind of sucks because you're in prison. But. Yeah, not a fan. <laughs> you could also get imprisoned for being a wrecker or um, a saboteur or whatever. But this was not. Oh, I blew up my factory. <laughs> I mean that, but also that would definitely do it. <laughs> but also, if you were like chronically late to work or if like lazy or something like that, oh, you shit. could be. Yeah. So. That's not good. I, I would not recommend mm, that. Yeah. If you're starting your commune, maybe don't make that one a rule. Yeah, I'm reaching for the phone to add this to the strike list. Yeah, hey, that's, you know, I, I disagree with it too, so. What was the term? Saboteur? Saboteur or wrecker. Uh, they probably have some other cool terms for it, but. Probably. Like, what was that bitch term? <laughs> Are we going to get to that? Oh, hell, uh, no, but let me look it up real quick. Uh, wasn't it Suki? I think Suka. so. Suka, yeah. That was the the bitch wars, <laughs> which is a real thing. Look it up; it's on Wikipedia. I'll put the link in the in the notes. Uh, but this was like a like a big conflict that was in the gulag uh, in the prisons, you know, in their prison system, which was just called the gulag. The gulag makes it sound like Very it's like scary. a concentration camp, <laughs> but it's just their prison system, which sucks again. But it's normal, also. The, the the term comes from like the Russian word suka, which just literally translates as bitch. <laughs> and in the criminal world, it referred to someone who uh, had cooperated with law enforcement or the government. I love it. And so and during the Second World War, they use like they, they kind of like reduce your sentence if you go serve in the military. But they don't reduce it to zero. So if you don't get yours reduced to zero because you still have more time. You know, you go back to the gulag people. Oh, that's a suka. He's, he's, he's a bitch because bitch. he worked with the government to get his prison sentence reduced. So that's funny. They had like, uh, they had big like fights and shit in prison because of that. Okay. So if you need a new word for narc, we got one for you. It's suka. <laughs> yeah. Side story. All right. Another downside I thought about industrialization that doesn't always get brought up. Sometimes they'll get brought up in very anti-communist circles, but not so much on the left. But I think that should be is like it's mm, it's very focused on this old school kind of Marx and Engels philosophy of humanity's mastery of nature. Mm, okay, I was going to ask about like kind of the environmental impact of this. Yeah, uh, the environmental impact definitely gets worse as time goes on in the Soviet Union. Although it's not to say that they don't do any sort of ecological measures. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time researching that because it just doesn't come up in Stalin's bit. Like yeah. in the 60s and 70s, they do more research <laughs> on it to kind of to figure out what's going on. But I mean, if you're building that many more factories it can't and, be and everything. Yeah. So th th that wasn't a concern to them. The concern was massive increases in industrial output in freeing humanity from the struggle for survival but not necessarily worrying about the ecological consequences of that at that time 
that would be something we'd have to. <laughs> the struggle for survival ends pretty quickly if you fuck up the planet <laughs> badly enough. So that's something we have to include in our in our leftist project that they didn't so much at that point. Uh, the upsides, though, of course, like we we said, all their achievements there. Overall, industrial output increased 118 percent. They finished the first five year plan early. Wow. Yeah, that's there's oh we're we're already done. <laughs> And most importantly, they start the process of industrializing the Soviet Union when they do. Because if things get worse for them, the longer they put that off. And remember, a war is coming. They don't know that yet, but they have an inkling of it. And if they hadn't gotten ready when they did... They would not have been prepared for that. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. Personal life break and some content warning for suicide. Uh, 1929, Stalin's son, Yakov. Uh, he attempted suicide. Uh, he failed. This earns Stalin kind of a shitty parent award. He like loses respect for Yakov after this. Oh, wow. Okay. 1932, uh, Stalin's wife, Nadezhda, commits suicide. Oh, okay. Um, she shot herself in the heart. Ow. Okay. That sucks. Yeah. They had a very tumultuous relationship. They fought a lot. One night after a major argument they had that's what she did wow reports say he was had gone from having been emotionally hardened after his first wife right yeah after his first wife's death went to you know supreme emotional hardness after this but i mean he was still like convivial or whatever with people when he was social but like just didn't have that you know could no longer love i don't know <laughs> <laughs> okay anyway uh, some other changes under Stalin during this time period include in 1936, uh, he, I don't know, orchestrated or like got the guys together to put together a new constitution. They also did another constitution, you know, in like the 70s or something. Just a reminder, ours is still from like the 1700s. Yep, yep. Totally applicable to today's problems. So if we could like, I don't know, get rid of it or something. That'd be great pretty nice so did a new constitution a lot of it was boring government reorganization stuff you can read it online i put a link to it in the in the notes but a lot of it's boring uh but there was a cool section and it's the section i linked in the notes about uh the rights of the soviet people Ooh, let me hear those rights all right so the first one's not overwhelming to us it's kind of underwhelming to us nowadays because of how the discourse has moved but it's the right to work not like union anti-union but like the right to have a job. Okay, yeah, that one's kind of boring. That's some bell riot shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I rewatched that recently, and I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> we just want uh, a job." But so these guys, you know, they were still in a socialist state, so they hadn't quite gotten to fully automated luxury gay space communism. So that was pretty good for them. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Second one's trans rights. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. No, it was the right to rent. Oh, so this isn't the order. I don't know. I just put these in here. And then had to go back and put in some. So the okay. right to rest and leisure. I would love to have that right, like enshrined somewhere. <laughs> yeah, the way they described that was that the overwhelming majority of their workers had seven hour days. What? Seven hour days. So this obviously changes in different times, you know, when they're rapidly industrializing. There's something called the Stakhanovite movement, which is just like work as much as you can, you know, produce as much as you can. Gross. But... You didn't have to do that. But yeah, they said that, yeah, the majority of their positions had, you know, it, it was seven hour days and paid vacations 
in the Constitution. It says paid vacations. Wow. Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> yeah. So when you agitate for paid vacations and stuff and your boss tells you that's some communist shit, they're right. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's bad. But it's but good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the right to retirement and disability care, um, things like social insurance, free health care, the right to education. We talked about how they had been putting that into place, right? They also, Stalin did this thing where he did like, he introduced Russian language like as being a compulsory language in education alongside the native language. Okay. So it's kind of like you it. have to learn. Yeah. It's kind of like you have to learn English, but. You can learn other things too. But but they also instruct you in your native language too. Yeah. Which isn't bad. I That was part of like, he was Georgian. So he didn't want to be like, didn't want people to say like, oh, that's that Georgian. Like he doesn't even believe in Russian language. Like he wanted to be kind of more <laughs> Russian than them. Yeah. So uh, I can see why he was motivated to do that. It kind of makes sense too from like the idea of rapidly industrializing. Like you're going to want everyone to be on the same page language wise if you're trying to like coordinate such a large project yeah that makes sense kind of a lingua franca sort of thing Mm -hmm. like we mentioned before they continued their literacy campaign the Likbez, built tons of schools newspapers libraries in 1926 you're looking at 51 percent of people over 10 were literate the gender breakdown of that is 66 and a half percent of males and 37.2 percent of females that was brought up to 90.8% of men and 72.5% of women by 1939. So massive gains there. For sure. Freedom of speech, press, assembly, protesting, religion, uh, separation of church and state, equal rights for all races and nationalities. And in the Constitution, uh, last little bit I wrote here was equal rights for women. Wow. I mean, I think if you told some you know, regular people off the street about these, I think they'd be surprised. If you told uh, a woman living in Stalin's Soviet Union about this, they may also be surprised. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Oh, no. So on women's rights, we're going to have to break out the strike. Oh, shit. Strike document for this. Stalin was not good. Yeah, this is when he starts, like, going after groups. Okay. Yeah, so in 1930, he abolished the Jeanette Dill, the women's department of the government. Oh, that sucks. He basically, he didn't do like the aircraft carrier with the mission accomplished sign behind him or whatever. (laughs) For you younger listeners, that's when George W. Bush said that during the war on terror. Yeah. Google mission accomplished banner. You'll find it. Yeah. (laughs) In the middle of still doing that. Uh, That's the (laughs) idea here is that the mission was not accomplished, but Stalin was just like, we did it. Okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, in 1936, the Central Committee pulled a modern-day U.S. Supreme Court and outlawed oh, abortions. Okay, that's on the strike list for sure. They did include an exception in case of health threats to the mother. Well, I mean, more than we're fucking doing in some states. Yeah. The stated reason was, I, I mean, at least they were sort of open with this. As I said, we want to increase the population. <laughs> Okay. Uh, they also cited health concerns, I suppose, that they thought that their abortion system was not. But we've already talked about that that's basically bullshit. And they mm-hmm. found out that was bullshit because their mortality rates increased. So Uh-huh. That's kind of uh, what happens. Uh, Stalin also made it harder to uh, get a divorce. You remember when we did the episode on the 
what was that on the what was life like in the Soviet Union one? Yes. Where you talked about the postcard divorces. No more of that shit. <laughs> oh, the one where you could just break up by mail? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, okay. Uh, I'm gonna say more difficult divorces. So I am I'm I'm typing all these up. These are bit you know, these are not good. We also know when the divorce when it's harder to get divorced, like more violence against women happens, like mm-hmm. women are more economically held back, like not good. You know, like when people are like, oh, people used to stay married. It's like, yeah, women couldn't have a credit card till like the 70s. So like, yeah. no shit, they stayed married. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're talking about shackling someone, like reducing people's freedom. You know, yeah, again, yeah. I'm, I'm the freedom guy. So <laughs> <laughs> freedom guy. Uh, so that was, those are all bad. Those are our bad. Yeah. During Stalin's time, though, they did increase benefits to mothers, uh, maternity leave, more child care services more family allowances. He also, during his time, the percentage of communist party membership that were women, uh, went up from a a dismal 5%. Holy shit. To 21%. Still not great, but sausage fest. Yeah. (laughs) He was like, Oh man, where are all the ladies? (laughs) I can't get a date around here. Come on. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you know, still below what it should have been, but yeah, yeah. But improving. Yeah, I'm sure they weren't flocking to the party because of his stance on abortion. <laughs> Fuck yeah, I love this guy. Uh, <laughs> I bet the literacy thing did help too. Yeah, uh, he was also bad on gay rights. Okay, yeah. They didn't have, I don't know how to say this, they didn't have... They didn't have gay rights? No, I mean, they didn't have like rights, you know, they would have called them like gay rights. They wouldn't have said like trans issues or anything like they, I haven't read anything on that at all. But they just said LGBT, you know, rights or what LGBTQ rights. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm going to guess they probably had some people who like, you know, dressed oh, like sure, a different yeah. gender, that kind no, of stuff. Yeah, I'm not trying to say like they didn't have people like that. I just mean <laughs> but in terms they never of like, wrote you know, any laws or anything yeah. in that regard. Gotcha. Yeah, there's no defense on this one. The motivation is really fucked up. So we said before that homosexuality was decriminalized in 1917 in the revolution. And this is basically because they accidentally threw it out the window when they <laughs> threw out the whole old czarist law book. They were just oh, like, none of that. Okay. And then they made their own laws, but they didn't make any law about, about gay rights or anything. So it just was, it wasn't a thing. Um, it wasn't that they were all progressive on it. Now, some <laughs> like somewhat they were, there were some Bolsheviks, who were progressive on the issue. There were like high ranking, high officials uh, who were openly gay, but there were plenty of party leaders and things who were just bad on this subject. There were many of them who saw uh, the gay lifestyle as like a bourgeois decadence. And increasingly as you lead up to when you see the rise of fascism in Germany and the lead up to world war two, people trying to make a really fucked up linkage between gayness and fascism. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen some of that before. Yeah. That's so weird. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's terrible. And it's not only played out there. It has also played out in other, uh, socialist states that have kind of fallen into this fucked up way of seeing, of seeing gay rights and everything. Yeah. What's funny is I also have seen the reverse of that too. I was looking through that book you have on, on world war two cartoons Mm -hmm. and there is a drawing of like 
an effeminate and he was man and he was labeled like as a Marxist too. So really it's just like, it's, it's like the classic, you know, middle schoolers in the two thousands calling things they don't like gay. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was an unfortunate chapter of our past that we mm-hmm. just, we just want to take those pages and burn them. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, there was that they were, uh, you know, c- calling it a mental disorder or linking yeah. it with pedophilia. These oh are all things God. we still see in our society. Uh huh. The wrong and terrible way to look at it, but that's that's like what they were doing. And Stalin was definitely saying, like, yeah, that sucks. And and did he criminalize homosexuality again? I guess sodomy, probably. Yes, that's in in 1933. Cr- recriminalized sex between men. Five years in prison. Wow, Jesus, better be a good blowy, huh? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. sorry to make a joke about something so terrible. Uh. Well, that's what we're here to do. We make we make light of situations. Of course. <laughs> uh, all right. So, yeah, that sucked. Uh, give him how, however many strikes you want for that. Yeah, that's a bad one. Uh, he also wrote a history textbook. I don't know if this is a strike for you or not. <laughs> I hate history textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he didn't, like, write it. He had one commissioned. He wrote one chapter of it, the chapter about dialectical materialism. Oh, okay. That's a nerd chapter to pick. <laughs> <laughs> but he was like, oh, hold on. This I got is my this. shit. <laughs> <laughs> the book was called The History of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, in parentheses, Bolsheviks. Probably could have worked on the title. I don't know. It's not very catchy. Well, that was, so that was the name of the party until later when they actually rename it the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, like sensible people. Because back in the day, remember, they had to distinguish themselves the Mensheviks. between the Mensheviks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds more like a subtitle. Bolsheviks. Yeah. No, no, no. Or like the whole thing could be a subtitle. He could have had a catchier main title. Yeah. Commissioned it in 1935, published it in 1938. At first, it was like just printed in the newspaper, like serialized, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. Which I think is kind of cool. Like it's for, you know, not for free, for but free for like, almost. Yeah, a ruble or something. That's really good. And then they published it in like, you know, one book, but they sold it for really cheap. It was like the cost of a, a gallon of milk or something. And so they were just trying to widely distribute it, you know, but it's, it's basically a textbook of the party history. It's, it's like the, you know, founding text of Marxism, Leninism, what people will call Stalinism. Like that's, it's, that's what it's codified in that basically. I mean, was it a good book? It's called in, in communist circles. It's called the short course, presumably because it's short, but it doesn't seem very short to me. It seems pretty long. How long is it? But I'm not a good reader. I don't know. Let me look it up. Not a good reader. I'm not, man. I have terrible discipline. I read very slowly. I can read. That's not what I mean. I can read. (laughs) No, you get distracted. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I I am a a chronic, non-monogamist book reader. You know, I'm reading several titles at once and I ditch Mm. them halfway through and yeah. Uh, This one, this PDF has 363 pages. That's long. Especially, like, if you think PDFs are, like, an eight and a half by 11, so, like, a book is going to be more like, you know, seven by 10 or something, so it's going to be way more. It's a pretty long, not that yeah. short of a course. No, that's a pretty long course. But people say, if you want to understand Marxism, Leninism, that's what you read. Mm, I'm probably I not going to do that. It. I've never done it, but. <laughs> yeah, listeners, let us know we should bother. Uh, but it was a, an especially influential text on a fellow named Mao Zedong, especially the part where Stalin and the book writers overall lay out that under socialism, once you've done the socialist revolution and you have the worker state and all that, 
the class struggle doesn't go away. It intensifies. So you have to consistently keep looking and keep saying like, what are the forces in our society that are trying to push us into reaction? Who are the guys who are out there saying, Oh, what if we do a little bit more capitalism? Oh, what if you just let me open my business? You know, that sort of thing. Trying to drag us back into working for them. You know, I think that makes sense. I I think unless you do have a full, you know, world revolution, like you're going to have outside factors that make you kind of wobble on some of those issues. Yeah. That was a big point I was trying to make. And, Mao takes that and that's part of the influence for, you know, the cultural revolution and things like that and the great leap forward, which do have some downsides, but you can tell like why he wanted to be vigilant about getting, you know, dragged backward into, into taking what he would call the capitalist road. Right. That's why he got a little purge happy. Yeah. Speaking of purges. Uh Oh, time to discuss one of the big deals in Stalin's bio, the great purge. Oh, gosh. Okay, I'm already opening my strike stock. (laughs) I'm ready to type. It's got several names. The Great Purge, the Great Terror, and the Yezovshina. The use of the the word purge, which is the most common one, is confusing to a lot of people because of the different ways that people use the word purge. Because a lot of times, if you're just talking about a party purge, that just means going through your list of party members, calling people in and saying, hey... Tell me about communism. Tell me about socialism. (laughs) Tell me. And if they, you know, a lot of people, what they would do is, yeah, a lot of people, what they would do is like join up because it would help advance their careers, but they didn't give a damn about it. Oh, okay. While party membership was growing, a lot of these guys were just assholes looking to get ahead. Mm, Okay. 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 So this was like a, a shibboleth. Right. And you wouldn't say, oh my God, you don't know what the dictatorship of the proletariat is here, bro. Come on. And then just execute them. That's not what happened. All right, like they, they got kicked out, you know, they may have, some of them like lost their jobs and stuff because they had very important connections and stuff that they had just bullshitted their way into. But in terms of party purges, that's not what we're talking about in terms of like big executions and stuff. So that's more like, you know, modern day example of, let's say a voter list purge. They're not going through and like murdering potential voters. They're saying, okay, let's go clean up our records or whatever. Yeah, except, yeah, well, probably just as disenfranchising, I guess, but... (laughs) I mean, it's not great. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not in favor of It's still pretty mean. But anyway, the whole thing, the Great Purge, its roots begin, it starts in 1934 with the assassination of a guy named Sergei Kirov. Who's that? Kirov was basically Stalin's protege. Mmm, okay. He was a close personal friend of his. He was a fellow old Bolshevik. He had come up during the revolution and things like that by this point he was party leader in leningrad uh old saint petersburg yeah modern day saint petersburg too (laughs) and he was kind of seen as one of the potential you know the western world would call it like the heir apparent successor yeah that obviously was up to the party but december 1st 1934 he got shot and (gasps) killed okay who did it who done it it was a guy named leonid nikolaev He was a disgruntled former party member, and when he was arrested and tortured, uh, he confessed to being part of a counter-revolutionary group working on behalf of a fascist country. Okay, I've got questions. We all know torture isn't, like, the most reliable way to get accurate information. Yeah. Was this a real thing? Probably not in his case, no. Okay. There are... People who claim that 
Kirov was assassinated on Stalin's own orders. <gasps> I don't think that's the case. There is, they, you know, they have access to the archives. They've never uncovered anything like that. There's no outside reasons to, there's no evidence that points to that. Just speculation and people, you know, some people saying, well, what if, you know? Uh, so I don't think it's the case. It's more likely that he was just, he was mad at being kicked out of the party. This was a local party leader. Blam. But there's also no evidence of the, like, the fascist conspiracy that we're talking about here either. He and 14 other people end up being executed, and then a wider investigation begins. What's up with all these fascists trying to infiltrate us? You know, there may be more enemies around. Oh, gosh. And so they, they get to looking, right? The party orders the NKVD, like the secret police, led by a guy named Genrik Yagoda. Uh, Genrik is like Henry in Russia. Henry Yagoda. Uh, to launch a massive investigation. The blame immediately focuses in on Trotsky, Zinoviev, and Kamenev. Oh my god. Yeah, Stalin's old rivals, here they are again, definitely doing some bad shit. I mean, isn't Trotsky, like, in Mexico or something? Well, Trotsky is in exile, (laughs) but he actually had been keeping up with stuff in Russia and coordinating with people in the Soviet Union to kind of like instigate plots against the government. Okay. That, that actually, he was really doing that. Shit. Okay. Now, how substantial were those threats? Probably not as substantial as Stalin thought. But they do discover correspondence with Trotsky in the possession of some of these arrested suspects. Oof, okay, not a good look. So then they're like, holy shit, right? The investigations uncover something called the Block of Oppositions, which is a secret anti-Stalin coalition formed way back in 1932 by Trotsky and these other dissident groups. Uh, We mentioned this on the Trotsky episode. Again, it's questionable like how much they did, but they were like against the government. They did kind of want to take over the government, that sort of thing. Were they working with fascists? Probably, Probably not. not. That's it's not Trotsky's Trotsky. bag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Was Trotsky in Mexico at this time? Did I get that right? 1937. Oh, not yet. Not quite yet. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, like, you could just be fucking Frida Kahlo. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Get it together, man. <laughs> yeah, man. You've got, like, a total babe. <laughs> so they find out, holy shit, they're working with Trotsky. This confirms that suspicion. And it makes their secret police chief Yagoda look kind of bad in Stalin's opinion. Why had this guy not known about this earlier? So he puts another guy, Nikolai Yezhov, in charge of the investigations and also in charge of investigating his boss, Yagoda. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. And what he probably does, people disagree on, did he frame him or not? But he probably frames him up because Yagoda will end up losing his job to Yezhov in September 1936. And the evidence all comes out and everything that he was like a German spy. But he probably wasn't. It's probably that Yezhov planted evidence and shit to make it look like that. And I'm just saying this would actually make a great prestige TV show, especially like we don't know what happens. And so we can make it like, oh, like, Who do you believe? That kind of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Lots of open-ended questions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The investigations end up culminating in the Moscow trials, which are 
Very complicated, too complicated to dive into deeply. But it's a series of mass trials of conspiracy leaders, and they are almost wholly driven by confessions that were made under torture. All right, that's definitely on the strike list. They use both physical and psychological torture, and these guys sing some pretty crazy tales. I'm fucking sure. We talk about all the time how we're not really doing anything, but if we're doing anything, we're preparing you to, like, go do the revolution. And <laughs> So keep that in mind. Yeah, and, like, you're going to build your future, you know, our future communist project and everything. Like, really, guys, don't torture. Don't do it, guys. It's Don't torture to get information. It. Definitely. Like, it's not useful. <laughs> yeah, it's also morally bad, but it's not even useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the first of the Moscow trials, the trial of the 16, was in August 1936. And they come up with crazy names for each of them. Do you care about the names? They're kind of cool. Yes. Kinda... So, <laughs> yes. <I do. laughs> uh, so the, this one's also called the Case of the Trotskyite Zinoviite Terrorist Center. This sounds like a Hercule Poirot case. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, a little darker than that, though. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he was fucking around at that point. So the point. trial of the 1616 defendants, they were accused of conspiring to kill Kirov and Stalin. This trial included Zinoviev and Kamenev. Oh no, Lemon Boy. And they were all executed. Oh, R.I.P. Lemon Boy. Yep. He confessed to, you know, crimes against the Soviet Union and all this and got executed. That guy was like an OG. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Those guys were there from the beginning. And that's one of the crazy things. One of the few things that does ring kind of true in Animal Farm is remember they had the part where it's like, oh, and then the animals started confessing to crazy shit. Yeah. Like that part was actually like shocking to people. It's like, holy shit, like I stand whoever, you know, and here they are telling me that they've always been working for the Germans or what have you. Again, they were tortured, so they were all just making shit up. <laughs> yeah, they would be fed a line and they would say, yes, yeah, I was doing that. Please stop, you know, or some of them were saying, please kind of get you to promise that you're not going to go after my family, whatever. Mm, you know? Okay. This is how they got this. Uh, the next one, the case of the anti-Soviet Trotskyist Center. Uh, this was in January 1937. 17 defendants accused of plotting with Trotsky, who was supposedly working with Nazi Germany. Okay. Probably was not doing that. Probably not. <laughs> Wasn't he Jewish? Uh, yeah, no, he was. Yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah, probably not. No, he was <laughs> almost certainly not. You can. No. I, I'm willing to read the evidence because I know there are hardline communists who will say, no, he was... I'm willing to take that, that. That's what I call a heaven bet. You know, like when you get to heaven, you get to see what really happened. I'm willing to take that bet that oh, that did not happen. I have so many of those. I really, that's all I'm going to be doing. Just watching the <laughs> yep. real history channel in heaven. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Most of these guys were executed. Four of them were sent to the gulag. Next you have in June, 1937. Uh, this one is actually a secret trial. So the other ones were public, and they really wanted to get those confessions out there and show everybody. This one was a secret trial because it was of senior Red Army officers. It was a case of the Trotskyist anti-Soviet military organization. Uh, this included Marshal Mikhail Tukayevsky, who was like a you know top Red Army guy, uh, and lots of other 
Red Army officers. It was a culmination of a series of Red Army purges of former Trotsky supporters or old czarist officers. Anybody who had been on the wrong side of things before, boom. That sucks. I hate these. They were accused of creating a right-wing Trotskyist military conspiracy, which I don't know how you can be a right-wing Trotskyist, but whatever. (laughs) Not really his bag, but okay. (laughs) I mean, again, Uh, he was kicked out of the party for being too left, but sure. (laughs) Yeah, and for spying for Nazi Germany. Yeah, clearly. They were all executed. That one was really bad. Uh, they were all bad, but this one was bad in terms of the effect it had on the Red Army. This is 1937. They are four years away from fighting from fighting Nazi Germany. And this got rid of, like, all their guys that know how to do that? Yeah. Okay, that's not going to be good. Is that why they just, like... I mean, I know they had a huge death toll in the war. Do you think that was part of it? Part of it was, yeah. Oh, that sucks. Next, you have the Trial of the 21. This is the final of the public trials and of the Moscow trials in general. It's also called the Case of the Anti-Soviet Block of Rights and Trotskyites. Okay. <laughs> they just keep lumping the words on. <laughs> no. I'm picturing like a book title, like, but the cover just gets like increasingly filled with words. <laughs> yeah, it's just words. <laughs> they have some art behind it, but you can't tell what it you is. You can't see what it is by the end of it. <laughs> uh, this is in March 1938. 21 defendants accused of and this is where they kind of are trying to tie up everything together so these guys get a rap sheet man oh yeah you're trotsky you're fascist you're right wing you're military everything (laughs) these guys are accused of plotting to assassinate lenin what the guy who died of a stroke (laughs) yeah they plotted to assassinate lenin stalin and kirov (laughs) plotted to wreck the economy spy for foreign countries And they also apparently made secret promises to give up land to Germany and Japan. Wreck the economy. Wow. I mean, sign me up for that crime. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the people's economy. This is a worker state. Oh, okay, okay. But our economy, I mean, if y'all want to wreck it, blow up a pipeline or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Don't. We cannot endorse that. But (laughs) It's on its I feel like all you have to do is like blow on it funny. It's fucking gone. (laughs) Yeah, true. Uh, this one included Bukharin and uh, Yagoda. Goda. Wow. The persecutor becomes the persecuted. Yup. Uh, Yeja framed him up real good, and so he ends up on the chopping block for the last of the show trials. <laughs> Sorry, I did picture Ted Allen from Chopped. <laughs> you Yagoda? are on the chop. No. You've been chopped. You've been chopped. <laughs> Chef Yagoda. Chef Yagoda. <laughs> oh. All but three are executed. The The rest were sent to the gulag. Yeah, this is a pretty major strike. I think I'm going to bold it on my list. I don't like this. The Moscow trials were bad. For one, because, I mean, of the ease with which you were like, yeah, strike. I mean, like, it was ter- like, that's how people reacted at the time. Like, the international communist movement who... I mean, they've they put up with some stuff already, you know, they've already kind of said, well, yeah, you know, they're chop, you know, the capitals come out in the press and they say, oh, they're the rivers are running red with blood and, and they're they're hanging as many people as they can and all this, the red terror. And they're saying, yeah, but it's got to be done. You know, they're they're doing what they can to, to stand up, to, to speak up for the worker state. And then something like this drops, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I will say, like you mentioned Animal Farm earlier, I think. 
one thing that was missing was the context of torture and and you know threats against your family and stuff like that because in that story it was like why the fuck are they doing this you know they're just like it looked like mindlessly confessing to stuff like almost in a weird hysteria yeah that they were just convinced that they did it yeah yeah it felt much more like gaslighty or i don't even know it was it was pretty wild and this one is a little, I mean, this one being what actually happened. Real, real life. Not <laughs> you know, a children's this, this story for adults. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can see more of the motivations behind it. Yeah. So just one in terms of the PR thing, which never should yeah, be your first good. thought. But in terms of like coldly thinking about the effectiveness of it. Yeah. It's not a good look. I would say, I would argue, to, just to kind of try to play fair is <laughs> oh. that they... We're not doing the Moscow trials and the Great Purge like out of like maniacal power hungriness. Yeah. I mean, do you think, I guess, I mean, in, you know, intent versus impact, but do you think they on some level believe these charges or we're at least paranoid enough to think like we can't risk it? That's yes. That's second option for sure. Um, I do think they believe that that there were threats. I don't know if. 100% of the time they thought, damn, we really got this guy. I don't think so. You know, the old adage in the legal profession is like, it's, it's better if 10 guilty people walk free than one innocent person is jailed. Yeah. And they kind of flipped that. Yeah. I think the opposite was largely speaking true in this case. And you know, you can say, well, that's not good. That's fine. From their point of view, they thought this is helping things be more secure. Even if I'm wrong, it's still helping. Yeah. I would add okay. that there was an element of there There were schemes. I mean, there, there were plots mm-hmm. against them. We're talking about the first socialist state in the world. People were trying to bring them down. But, I mean, it seems like they're pointing in all the wrong directions. Going after people in the party? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I'm sure some of those plots probably involved some sort of infiltration, but it just, I don't know, it seems like a pretty wild way to go about security, you know. I'm I'm 100% sure that they got some guilty people. And I'm also 100% sure that they got some innocent people. Probably more innocent people than guilty people. I would take that bet as well. <laughs> but I definitely know they got some of each. But I think it's way out of proportion I think it's, again, re- we cannot emphasize enough, really bad to use torture to extract confessions from people does not work, first of all. Like you can, again, morality, sometimes I traffic in it, sometimes I don't, but it's not effective. Don't do no, it. No, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work. So yeah, for me, awful idea. Okay, big, big strike. That's like worth 10 strikes, but okay. <laughs> Maybe he does something super cool after that. And then he says trans rights. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and let you down easy. He's no. never going to say trans rights. I'm, I'm just joking. Uh, uh, um, be hilarious, though. There was a missing, you know, the, the, a file folder got stuck together in the Soviet archives. <laughs> They're like, they did you guys up. know? <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh. July 1937, the NKVD, still under Yezhov, starts something called mass operations. They arrest and execute entire groups of people. Okay, that's bad. That's also going on the list. Mass operations. Yeah. Uh, first up were the anti-Soviet elements. So this includes ex-Kulaks who had been exiled. 
They're exiled, though. What are you trying to... Are they, like, doing shit? Well, let's lump it all together. Um, Those guys, former czarist officials, former white army officers, the clergy, former members of non-Bolshevik parties like the Socialist Revolutionaries or the Mensheviks or what have you, and just regular people who had committed crimes, like burglars, you know? know, Burglars. These were the guys who were targeted in this one. So there were mass arrests... Around 600,000 arrested and mass executions, around 380,000 executed. That sucks. Like, okay, what's the time gap here, I guess, between, you know, I'm thinking in between revolution and when this happened? Well, like 20 years? 20 years, yeah. So you're going to get, like, killed for, like, a job you had 20 years ago? What if you, like, legit had changed your mind? Yeah. No, I mean, that's, you're right. (laughs) That's really bad. They would say, how can you be sure? I don't know. Oh that's the, that's not the best defense, but that's the best defense they had, probably. It's really not. Is, uh, yeah, oh. but what if, you know? Okay. That's And that's one of the things I put in my notes is like, yeah, maybe some of these guys were still bad, but like, maybe they weren't, you know? Yeah. They could have left. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So this is just a pure law and order crackdown. Not a fan. Yeah. Pretty shitty. August 1937, they issue an order where the NKVD was going to go, well, started going after the wives and children of people convicted as traitors. Fuck. Okay, that's defo another strike. They said, send those guys to the gulag. Okay, fuck that. The justification was that this would encourage people not to be traitors, so that that wouldn't (laughs) happen. Okay. Great, great. Because we know that works too, you know, deterrent. Yeah, everyone thinks they're going to get caught, so they make sure that they don't do crime so that they don't have to... <laughs> That's why our crime rate is so it's, non-existent. Yeah. I mean, if mm-hmm. you look at the severity of crimes and, like, the level of capital punishment that states do, <laughs> it directly correlates with how just peaceful they are. <laughs> In On Reddit, you would see a slash S there. Yes. <laughs> then you have something called the National Operations. Okay. You you sound like you already don't like this. I mean, operations so far have not led to good things. Yeah, Yezhov, gonna say, gonna go ahead and add him to the quote-unquote friends of the show section. Him and Ronnie Reagan. I mean, Reagan doesn't have as big of a body count as this guy, I don't think. <laughs> but still. I don't know, are we counting the AIDS crisis? <laughs> true, true. Uh, the national operations round up specific nationalities. Okay, this one, come on, guys. It starts against Germans. Uh, and and so it's motivated by security concerns. They say that people from certain nationalities... So, you know, think about the American rationality mm-hmm. for, like, internment, internment. camps and shit. You know? yep. It's that sort of thing of, like, oh, they may have split loyalties, or they may have secret, you know, connections, or what have you. That sort of thing. Yeah, that's a bad one. Starts with Germans, and then it goes to Polish people. Um, and then lots of groups, uh, Greek, Latvian, Korean, Estonian, Finnish, uh, mass arrests and mass executions. This ends up killing around 247,000 people. Jesus. Okay. So we're looking at 1938 now. The purge has killed around 680,000 people and arrested more than a million people. It's so widespread that it's hurting the economy. Yeah, I was going to say population-wise. I mean, I don't know their population at the time, but like that seems like a big portion to be 
killed or imprisoned. Yeah, and, and the Red Army decimated pretty much everything across the board. Stalin is like, he's too, you know, he's, he's going to meetings and shit. And finally, he's, he said to me, he's like, wait, what? What are our numbers? What the fuck? What's happening? <laughs> you did this. Uh, yeah. That was you. He orders the purge to be wound down. And, and Yezhov ends up basically <laughs> taking the fall for it. He gets demoted. He's made like people's commissar for water supply or something like that. And uh, a very monstrous fellow, Lavrenti Beria, replaces him. Beria was the guy from the death of Stalin. If you recall him, he was short, very round, kind of looked like the penguin, sort of, I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's in late 1938. And Beria, you know, eases up on the purge, just like, you know, hits the brakes, mass releases from the gulag. The government even admits to excesses. Sorry, guys, got a little out of hand with the executions. My bad. Well, no, they don't say my bad so much as saying Yezhov's bad. Okay, yeah. This guy's bad. <laughs> the Soviet histories refer to it as the Yezhov Shina. Uh, Yezhov himself is arrested in 1939 uh, and tortured. And he, under torture, he confesses that all along he was a German spy. Of course. He was a wrecker. He embezzled. He was gay. Which the records show they may have actually been gay. But, um, oh, okay. You know. The pro-gay community does not claim him. Yeah, no, uh, no, he's not one of ours. <laughs> uh, he was executed in 1940. And then we're kind of left to say, well, okay, was this actually all Yezhov's fault? You know, like mm -hmm. Yezhov, Stalin, where does the blame lie? So Stalin, he's in charge of the NKVD. He could appoint its leader. He could get rid of Yezhov if he wanted. I assume he also got reports on some of this shit. Yeah, he was also involved in specifics. He delegated. It's not like he didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he delegated a lot to Yezhov. Yezhov had a wide reign, but, like, he still personally signed off on kill lists of some 40,000 people. That's like, not great. Directly, you know. That's not many in the overall totals, as we just showed, but it's still a lot. And he's still signing off on those, on the orders that specify those national operations. Yeah, he still said generally, hey, that's totally cool to go round up women and children. So each one of them, yeah. Yezhov would come and say, hey, this is the Here's national operation against the Germans. In, you know, the Germans, they have connections to uh, Nazi sympathizers and, and whatnot and their reactionary elements. And we're going to go round up those guys. And he'd be like, yeah, sure. And then he'd repeat with all the other ones. And then this was in conjunction with the previous order that he had signed that was like, go after the wives and children of them if, you know, if, if they are convicted as traitors. So like. That's all, like, you got to know what you're doing, man. Yeah, yeah, that was all approved. Yeah, you can say uh, to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs or whatever. <laughs> all right. This is just shell. You've served me some shells. Say that and you own it, you know, but <laughs> I think it's, and, and there is the possibility Yezhov misled him as well. Yeah, yeah, of like, oh, I definitely have evidence that these guys are Nazis. And it's like, yeah, yeah then definitely kill them. Yeah, there's, there's, there's that aspect too. I don't want to deny that. I mean, cops do this. They, like, kind of pad their stories, pad their numbers. Like, that's a thing you do is, like, you, you search for evidence where there might not be any. Yeah. And, you're, you know, you're trying to impress by being the tough guy on crime or whatever. And, you know, it is clear that Stalin eventually figures out that, like, whoa, this is too much and calls it off. But, like, 
it doesn't, I don't know. To me, it doesn't wash his hands clean of it. Like they do answer to you. <laughs> and I think that's, it's very telling that he only does it when it's like, oh shit, like our economy suffering. <laughs> like it's not, oh shit, I killed all these people. It's like, oh, oh no consequences. Yeah. I think it's important to kind of look at it in, in those terms instead of saying like, the kind of liberal argument of like ends and means in the abstract sense. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Cause I mean, I don't know. I would say Stalin and the Soviet union were doing the purge in response to threats to their socialist project real. And then kind of what they extrapolated past that. I would say that maybe some sort of brutal ruthlessness, some sort of action is necessary to fight against a fascist and counter-revolutionary threat, but probably not to this extent, you know? Definitely yeah. not to this extent, I would say. I think it was like a self-perpetuating cycle of once you start saying like, okay, we're going to torture people for information, you're going to get bad information, and then you just build off that bad information with successive rounds of torture, you know? Like, they, they never had, I feel like, a solid intelligence, it seems like, that they were acting on. And even like the, the fucking... You know, what was his name? Jurov, the top cop. Top cop. Oh, um, Yezhov. Yezhov. Sorry. Um, even that guy, like, he got his job by framing another guy. So, like, it's all a very like misinformation fueled system. That's actually why I said maybe, maybe he framed his former employer because he told his captors that when they tortured him. Exactly. So that's the problem with all of this is you just so don't we have no know. idea. Like all yeah. of this information that they're working off of is just fucking completely made up, or maybe not. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, lessons: Don't torture. Don't torture, guys. You'll lead to a big old purge. Don't go after the wives and the children. Definitely don't do that. Even if you know, like someone's a traitor, don't do that. Don't round up ethnic groups. I can't believe I'm having to say this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but we're trying to teach you communism that's not how you do it yeah yeah <laughs> all right overall the purge 20 strikes i don't know however many strikes you want to get now i mean like again they pro like i said they definitely got some guilty people but just they they pro they they went too far oh for sure and that's where we're gonna make our more strident listeners upset you know the the, the ones that are maybe have the epithet of tanky hurled at you. It's that I mean, like, you know, there are online communities and stuff that will say, like, Stalin didn't go far enough in the purges. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Those, they those, love the women and children thing? They're like, uh, that's my favorite. The, the specifics. But, like, they, they say, like, he, you know, let people off that, that still... Gu guilty people, I guess, went free. I mean, maybe, but, like, I don't know. That that just seems really, like, at what fucking cost? Yeah, that's, that's what I run into is... Uh, you know, effectiveness, but yeah, morality as well is, it's not good. All right. Great purges. Everyone's favorite. <laughs> Super fun. But now it's done. Uh, let's do a little foreign <laughs> policy. 1924, the Soviet Union shifted from the early foreign policy of like world revolution. Let's export this stuff to saying, okay, actually, no, we're going to defend what we've got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Socialism in one country. We're the base of the future world revolution. It's still somewhat internationalist in the sense that, like, we do want to do this in the future, but, like, we're looking out for ourselves first. One of the things they do during this time, which doesn't really fit in the overall theme, 
uh, is encouraging Mao and the Chinese communists to form an alliance with the Kuomintang, the nationalists in China against the Japanese. Oh, yeah. Okay. I remember that did not turn out well. Uh, They got betrayed April 1927. Lots of communists got killed. Probably a mistake. (laughs) Okay, what year was that? 1927. Okay, that's pretty early. Because I was wondering, I'm like, man, y'all like super paranoid doing purges and shit. And then you're telling other people like, oh, just trust (laughs) these guys. (laughs) Yeah, no, I don't think that. Okay, okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting overlap. We'll, we'll Maybe see that. Maybe, though, yeah, they learned from that, and they're like, we can't trust anybody. <laughs> so in 1928, they shift to something called the third period. And these mm. periods are like people looking back and... Yeah, they, they didn't say, now we're in the third period, guys. <laughs> well, so actually, uh, the common turn, right? So the International Communist Organization were they were the ones looking back and saying okay so we were in the first period this was happening we're in the second period this was happening they actually did say oh we are now in the third period okay new period guys that was in 1928 and they said capitalism was entering its final collapse oh honey i really wish (laughs) that would have been real fucking cool can you imagine what what could our lives have been Beautiful, beautiful. So because of that assumption, capitalism, it's on its way out. The focus shifted to the threat of, instead of, you know, right wing or whatever people, we're going to focus on the threat of non-Marxist socialists and social democrats. Okay, really count your chickens before they hatch, huh? Yeah, you don't want these guys dragging you back to reaction. Um, What year is this one again? (laughs) 1928 to 1934. All right, so you just completely going to ignore that rise of fascism that's happening that that's not the real problem (laughs) yeah they were calling these social democrats or whatever they were calling them social fascists what you know and they raised some valid criticisms that like yeah you only want to do social democracy but you're fine with imperialism abroad and things that we've talked about before i'm not a fan of that either but come on guys you got some bigger fish to fry yeah and they they find that out the hard way (laughs) With the rise of the Nazi party to power in Germany. Yeah, that'll do it. And again, they, they also saw the crushing of the Italian left under Mussolini. And that, I think, because Italy was not as powerful of a country, they were able to kind of say, Meh, you know, but. Yeah, who cares? That definitely won't happen to us. <laughs> but when it happens in Germany in 1933, they're like, oh, fuck, shit, okay. In 1934, they kind of take a little bit to assess. And then they're like, okay, you know, fuck, we got to change this idea fourth period we were wrong well they don't do the fourth period because remember the third period that that was like the present tense at mm. the time um so at this point they just say like team up with any old leftist any anti-fascist liberal anyone we're going to do the popular front and this is where it's just like anti-fascist that's what we're going to do you'd be surprised at how low a bar that is these days <laughs> it was low then too i mean you know i mean yeah yeah you were you know the the communist party usa went from deriding the new deal and saying this is bullshit this is just trying to prop up capitalism to supporting it like on a dime they said oh actually this is good let's help you know because the strategy changed that's the popular front this is when stalin sent lots of help to the republican government in Sp- the spanish civil war to fight against Franco's nationalists. Remember, they sent a bunch 
of troops, planes, tanks, artillery, all that stuff. Yeah, and reminder of who was sending stuff to the other side. The United, the United States uh, <laughs> and businesses, not directly, but businesses were doing that. Um, mm-hmm. They were doing business with National Spain. The Nazis were sending troops. <laughs> the Italians, the, the fascists in Italy were sending troops. Which side's the good side? I can't tell. <laughs> so confusing. It's it's really hard to tell. It because <laughs> the Republicans are the good guys. That's why it's hard to tell. They, I didn't mean that is confusing. <laughs> he also sent the NKVD like secret police officers mm-hmm. to keep tabs of everything there, like the political situation, and kind of do some spying and shit. In Spain. Yeah, and that was bad uh, during the purge. They really went after the the PUM, the P O U M. This was the Marxist, but not like aligned with the Soviet Union party. Frequently described as Trotskyist, but they weren't really Trotskyists. I don't know. They were just they Marxists. just weren't like overtly Stalinist. So yeah, <laughs> that's good enough. And you can go back and listen to the Spanish Civil War episode if you want kind of details. But it was really nasty stuff. That whole interaction with the the the, the communist government, like the Republican government and the communists, teamed up to like wipe out the Poom. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so annoying. And right after, like, we'll work with anybody. <laughs> yeah. Dumbasses. Not good. Okay. No. Okay. I'm going to put that one on here. Wiping out the poom. Yeah. And the poom, I mean, you know, sure, probably they had some problems. But, you know, what they did and, and torturing people to death and everything. Andres Nin was, was the guy that we talked about in that episode. That's no way you cut it is that good, you know. They also, in the course of the war, took most of the gold reserves of the Bank of Spain. Okay, that's kind of shitty. It was to protect it from the nationalists, and I was reading about it, and I was like, oh, that sounds like they just robbed them. (laughs) It was worth about $10.8 billion in today's money. Uh, But what they did, they actually, like, didn't take much of it. So they did take some of it, which is kind of annoying, (laughs) because you have the Soviet Union, like, basically playing banker. Because they're taking some of it as, like, commission fees and shit like that, which is stupid. That is stupid. But they, you know, sold or, like, transferred most of it into money that the Republic could use to do the war effort. So, like, that was good, kind of. Just the little bit about, like, putting on a little banker visor is annoying. Yeah, that is annoying. (laughs) Like, don't do that. Um, But the right wing tries to sometimes say, like, look at the communists. They stole all the gold. I mean, you want to talk about stolen art? <laughs> well, uh, spoiler, they don't. <laughs> they yeah, do not want yeah. to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saw a really great tweet the other day that was like, separate the art from the artist and then the British Museum. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's our business model. <laughs> That's all we do. <laughs> Turns out this episode went kind of long. Tune in next time for the thrilling conclusion of Stalin. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. 
and we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up and coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.